Insights on Responsible Business is a podcast about organizations building trust, security, and resilience to thrive in an era of stakeholder capitalism. Our host is Sir Rob Wainwright, who talks with business leaders and experts about their experiences in charting a new direction towards commercial success and a greater societal impact. Our guest is Rich Bache, AIG's Chief Information Security Officer. In this role, he's responsible for developing, implementing, and operating an information security strategy to address AIG's cyber risks. He protects AIG's data and manages cybersecurity-related risks while enabling the business. Over to you. Great. Thank you, Rodney. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, well, great to have you today, Rich. I know I know something about your career, and you're one of the foremost cybersecurity leaders in the industry today. I think I don't want to embarrass you. You're also advising uh, US government on the protection of critical national infrastructures. It's a whole stack of experience for our listeners to learn from you today on this dynamic, complex, ever more concerning threat of cyber. So let's, well, let's start maybe with how last year ended in terms of major cyber headlines, the SolarWinds hack that was revealed to have penetrated some of the deepest reaches of the US federal government, as well, of course, of many, many businesses around the country and beyond. Tell me, Rich, how, how, how were you reading that incident in terms of its scale and impact? You know, Rob, it's, uh, it's interesting, right? The, um, the SolarWinds, you know, was a breach. You know, the attackers were able to compromise the update process of a widely used piece of SolarWinds software. And in the cybersecurity circles, this is referred to as a supply chain attack, an especially devastating variety of cyber aggression. When we think about this, though, what makes this really significant is by compromising one vendor, the attackers were able to get access to all the vendor's customers, compounding the issue even further. The event also highlights the challenge of managing the supply chain of individual organizations. When I think about this, you know, specifically, it, dem- it demonstrates that even if a given um, organization has good defensive capabilities, it may be vulnerable to attacks targeting its vendors. Let's keep in mind, though, this is, this is, this is really a seismic um, government cybersecurity event. And, and it's not, but it's not the first major cyber attack. Um, supply chain exploitation has been going on for a long time. Just some quick examples. 2011, RSA admitted that the RSA secure ID tokens were hacked. One of its customers, Lockheed Martin, was attacked as a result. 2017, we had Russian actors compromise the Ukrainian accounting system as part of an attack designated to target the country's infrastructure, but the malware spread quickly to other countries. And in 2017, we had the Equifax breach when the company said it, it cost nearly $2 billion as attackers took advantage of the unpatched Apache Struts vulnerability. So as you can see, even though this has made headlines, we need to keep it in perspective. This type of attack has been going on for quite some time. But the fact, Rich, that it's you know been going on for quite some time, and there's there's a whole long list of notable other incidents, as you said. Um, I mean, what's that? T- we'll come on to talk about supply chain vulnerabilities in a bit, maybe. But I, I'm just thinking, you know, those terms that it's really stacking up as some kind of almost environmental hazard that we all face now. That that maybe you can even be hit on a massive scale, even when you're not the intended target. You know, such as the effects of the kind of 
pollution almost from from a cyber incident of the, of that kind. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I would maybe categorize it, Rob, like it's a uh, unintentional consequence, right? Let's say a bad actor, um, a nation state actor is uh, targeting a particular nation state um, and they discover what type of software that entity is using. And then they go target that software entity and somehow they're able to figure out how to put malicious code or a backdoor into that software. And then as they exploit that software, and even though they have a specific target, suddenly they realize they have access to so many other customers of that vendor that their initial um, scope of what they were trying to achieve, the aperture grows. And suddenly they're actually able to do more and more. And consequently, that, that drives their behavior. I mean, it's a behavioral change that we see all the time. But um, the more successful they are, the more challenging it can be to organizations who, again, may not think they're necessarily a target of a nation state, but because they have that software and then may maybe, maybe they are a supplier of another company. So it's almost like third and fourth party risks that result as uh, that that can be resulted as an um, example of the exploit. I guess it's a feature, though, of of the way in which in this ever more interconnected world we're all tied up with one another. We're all depending on and co-depending on each other in terms of of different supply chains, for example. So we're all wrapped up in this finely integrated ecosystem, and then you get a hit like this. And you called it on un unintended consequences, but they can still be still have a, a massive damage, right? It's more than just a ripple effect for, for some companies, I guess. And that, I just wonder also in in the case of SolarWinds, you know, the, what the sort of threat actors were demonstrating in that case. How can they get so far, so deep in what should be a highly protected area? I mean, how good are these guys now that you're seeing coming up with these kind of threats? Well, you know, so remember, you know, the software supply chain exploitation that we're seeing specifically with SolarWinds is, is usually it's targeted towards a particular company. And then um, it's a matter of how well companies are securing their software. I think as a, as a, as a world, we, we haven't recognized the fact that there is more software in all automobiles than there was in the first rocket that went to the moon. So our world is interconnected and it's being run by software. So when we look at vendors that are developing the software, it's critical for them to secure that software. And obviously there are many different techniques to doing that. But I really think that um, this exemplifies the fact that an adversary who desires to exploit the supply chain has many different avenues that they could choose to um, exploit. But more importantly, it's the interconnectivity of that software that helps drive the result. When, when, I, when, I, when I look at this and I view the threat, I, I kind of use a mental formula. And that formula is risk equals vulnerabilities. As we know, there's lots of software vulnerabilities every day that come out new. So there's always going to be risks times the threat. Now, threat actors change. When you begin to start looking at a nation state, they can spend a billion dollars trying to get by defenses. 
Um, there's really no organization out there that's spending a billion dollars to protect their enterprise. Um, and then the asset value. And, and then the last part of the formula is the probability of occurrence. And, and to get back to your point, Rob, I think what SolarWinds has driven in an awareness of that the probability of occurrence of falling victim through a supply chain is very, very real. Thus, organizations need to be bold and look to employ risk management practices to try to reduce the risk and the impact. And are they doing that, Rich? I mean, you and I are both in the cybersecurity world. You know, we've both been on this drumbeat now for some time of, of sending this message to the boardrooms, executive teams of major companies to take cyber more and more seriously. I think that's happening now, by and large. Um, but, you know, when, when our listeners are hearing the way you describe, you know, the state of our vulnerability, the state of these threats, you know, it can be quite alarming still. So. What are still the headline, you know, terms and points that should be in the minds of the executives on, on cyber? What are the big takeaways on cyber? What, what more do we have to do here? I think one of the biggest things that, you know, boards of directors and CEOs need to recognize is um, you have to constantly reprioritize your investments in cyber to try to look around the corner, to try to anticipate the, the risk. But you also have to weigh that with the probability of occurrence, right? The adversaries um, utilize a set of tools and techniques that organizations need to understand. They need to build the appropriate defenses and risk management and define the risk appetite associated with this in order to mitigate those risks. Um, Cybers security is going to be a continuous investment, um, but it's about reprioritizing and, and also, you can't do it overnight. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people think you can snap your fingers, spend a lot of money. But the reality of it is, is you need a a twelve month window, um, and then every quarter revisit that because you may have to readjust your priorities, readjust your budget associated with the response to what is being um, utilized by an adversary today. When somebody falls victim organizations should ask themselves, could I fall victim to that same exploit? Because that exploit will eventually make its way around to every company, um, but it's proven. It's not a hypothetical issue anymore. Somebody just fell victim because of this technique and this exploit. So organizations need to test their environment, shore them up to make sure that that exploit can't be successful in their environment. Yeah, and I like how you, how you described it there at the start, Rich. You know, they need to do that in this agile, dynamic way because the threat changes so much. They need to have, as you put it, this capacity to see around corners. It's a good way of putting it. And and we've moved beyond the point, haven't we, where companies can think that they can spend, you know, a magic dollar or find a silver bullet solution. They don't exist, you know, for, for a threat like this. I think you're absolutely right. Let's come on to talk about supply chains because we hear a lot about it. Solar winds is by no means, as you say, the only incident. And, and you know, rightly, we are becoming more and more concerned about as we become more dependent on these interconnected global supply chains. I guess in many ways, they just open up more back doors for adversaries to get in. It, it seems like an intractable problem, Rich, unless there's a bold solution out there. What do you think? Yeah. So, you know, listen, we're, we're trying to solve a risk. There's no industry standard for. Um, as security professionals, we constantly have to deal with the question, what is enough security? So when you look at the supply chain, 
for an organization to believe that um, they should be spending the amount of money that's required to secure the supply chain, that, that number is large. And then if you extrapolate that out and ask every organization to spend that money, um, that's a, that's a big budget t- cut to any corporation. And, um, you know, you talked about bold, right? So I guess my, my bold statement and suggestion would be, would be is, is we need the industry to step up to this. Um, it's, it's kind of like managing your own portfolio where we have mutual funds that, um, individual investors and institutional investors can look, look to, and there's a rating system. They're rated. Um, and I think we need to look at our larger, broader supply chain and think about like a, a Morningstar type of rating for software that helps organizations understand the risk of that software. You know, an industry, government, national, international consortium needs to get around this and come up with how software can be rated so we can understand the risks as a consumer. If you think about it, there's lots of different consumer items that we buy every day that somehow, some way has a, has a rating, whether that be a, you know, a, some type of government rating or some type of health rating that helps um, consumers and organizations choose what is, what is good and not good. One thing that comes to mind is in the world of nuclear, right? When you want to be a vendor in the, in the nuclear world, there's an approval process that you have to go through. A, a very substantial one, because as you can imagine, we wouldn't want any failure of parts in any type of our nuclear power plants. We have approvals, obviously, for many different machineries. Um, software is core to what our world does today. So having some type of consortium would be very, very helpful. And, and also, I think the most economic and most efficient way of doing it, rather than trying to put this onus on on each individual organization. Yeah, that's a really smart idea, and it's not something I've heard before. Because even even in our everyday lives, you know, what we eat, what we consume, you know, are governed in most countries with health and safety standards. They have to reach a certain level. I like your idea of, of a rating system, like for for mutual funds. Um, it seems really simple, actually, Richard. Has it been tried at the moment? You know, how far have we got with with this sort of idea at the moment? Great question, Rob. I, I am aware of one, one organization that's kind of sort of working on this task. It's called the Consortium for Information and Software Quality. It's a special interest group whose mission is to develop an international standard to automate software quality measurements and to promote the development and sustainment of secure, reliable, and trustworthy software. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, um, you know, that is, that is, that is one example. Um, you know, and there, there are some examples in the past where I think, you know, governments in, in particular, I know from the U.S. government standpoint that they've, you know, put some um, controls in place in the past that, to make sure that the software that was um, being um, utilized, you know, passed certain common, common criteria. Um, so, again, I think, I think internationally, I think some nation states are beginning to look at this issue and uh, I think there's, there's a commonality here, right? I, I think there's strength in numbers and, and strength in organizations and countries working together on this rather than silos. It could be, should be maybe government-led. At the same time, you know, you said earlier that industry has to take responsibility in a way that self-regulates. There must be scope here for, for industry leaders to, or a consortium, as you say, of industry leaders to sort of 
stand up a kind of practical solution here, something that would actually work? Is there scope for that? You know, I, I, I believe there is. I mean, and, and, and ironically, um, this is less of a technology control, right, as much as it is a business risk management control. Um, you know, this, this is about having appropriate process, quality, quality assurance. Um, and again, we, we do this, every nation does this in some of their um, different types of um, dependencies. And again, nuclear power keeps coming to my, to, to my view because let's face it, there is, um, um, you know, zero acceptance for, for any fragmentation of a control or deficiency just because of the potential impact. So, you know, this is really a call to quality, right? And defining um, what a quality standard is. And I, I, again, I, I can't imagine that that's not a commonality across any culture, right? Um, across um, any nation state. Um, ultimately, you know, we all want the lights to work. We all want our health system to work. We all want our control systems and power systems and water flow to work. And um, there's risk associated with that software if it's not protected to a certain higher assurance level. And, you know, Rob, it doesn't have to be a, you know, one size fits all, right? So, you know, in a, in a good risk management approach, maybe there's um, one level of software assurance for something that doesn't have payments flowing across it. Maybe there's a different level of assurance for things that have personal identifiable information, you know, that's being used for, um, you know, software that doesn't have residual impact to other things may not need the same level of security. By the way, that's a standard practice that we do today, right? I mean, at our perimeter, we want all of our vulnerabilities fixed in the shortest time frame possible. Internal to an organization, you may get a little bit more leeway to fix that vulnerability. So when, when we're talking about this, it, it shouldn't be a one size fits all. We should, we should look at this from a risk management standpoint and different assurance levels. And the point you make is, is that from that you know, different risk management point of view, in some cases, if it really matters, and it does, because the way in which the threat is, is, is developing now and the vulnerability is becoming more exposed, if it really matters, then there ought to be something, there can be something that we do about it in, in, in that way. You mentioned nuclear. Um, so the role of government, I mean, I was interested, Rich, I, I saw that you co-authored a report, you were part of the US President's National Infrastructure Advisory Council. Um, you know, that report was around how, again, we have to do collectively a lot more to protect our nation's interests. What do you, you know, working with that sort of community, did it give you signs of hope? I mean, what sort of priority actions as a collective community were you able to identify through that report? Um, yeah, Rob, so it was, it was interesting. Our, our, our task was to look at the inevitable public-private information sharing discussion that, um, you know, continues to, to make headlines. And what we decided to do was we said, okay, let's assume there's, there's so many different information sharing mechanisms out there. Uh, you know, I'd say the market's saturated with that. But where, where I think um, there's opportunity is what do you do with the information, right? I, I always like to put things in short context. Know about it, get it, use it. And today, I think when I look internationally, um, there, there is, an, specifically in the United States also, but 
there's a good know about it. You know, people are able to get that information, but where the failure is, is how can organizations take action? So for example, in the case of SolarWinds, if, an, if there was an entity that existed, and this was this concept we called the Critical Infrastructure Command Center, um, you know, it, just by name, if it existed and it was focused on helping civilization, you know, can it push out code and information to let companies know they were susceptible to the exploit? A center like this could help out not only big and large enterprises, but also small enterprises with clean and secure code to understand their vulnerabilities. When there is a large global risk like SolarWinds, wouldn't it be great if government had a center that would be able to corral that information and push out information so that entities could quickly discover if they were at risk? And, and by the way, there was fantastic response from SolarWinds from every vendor was coming up with the solution to help you find it and the whole bit. The challenge was there was too many, right? It would be a lot better to just have one area, one trusted area for somebody to go to to get that information so that they could take appropriate actions to mitigate the risk. So that was really our concept is really about innovating and responding to the threat to produce actionable tech, code, innovation, scannings, so that um, organizations can understand the risk and take the appropriate actions that are Yeah, and I think that's really interesting, you know, because in the end, um, you know, intelligence is one thing, but actually converting it into something that's actionable on the ground that's going to make an impact in the way that you described is, is, is the name of the game. Um, you know, when you were describing that, my mind goes back to a different example. Back in the day when I was at Europol, we brought the major ransomware, anti-ransomware vendors together, along with law enforcement. You know, and, and something as simple as that, through the portal of what, what is the European Law Enforcement Agency, you know, we were able to make freely available the top ransomware solutions, for example, the codes that would allow you to, to deal with the ransomware attack in 50 of the most common ransomware. And that, that is still available today, you know, and, and it's getting simple tools and solutions out like that. Companies, if they're hit by a ransomware attack, unless it's the most sophisticated latest example, can go to a portal, download the decrypt, and you're back up, up and running. And what you're describing is something on, on an even bigger scale, of course, and, and is also across, you know, critical infrastructure assets, which are, you know, the, the highest priority concern we have in national security terms. You've got a lot, a lot of buy-in behind that, Rich. I mean, there's a lot of actors buying into that at different levels? Was, did you get a sense of, of a team effort swinging behind it? Yeah, so um, initially we did the report, um, I guess it was December of 2019, and the, uh, the National Security Council said, hey, could you do a follow-up, get a little bit more detail, what would it look like, what would it take? So we published this, the um, second version in December of 2020, and then here, um, in the United States also, there's been a, a, a cybersecurity solarium um, consortium that was, and, and um, we worked closely with them because they were making large recommendations. So, um, you know, the recommendation goes to, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security and ultimately the, the president. And um, what we hope to see is some, some action from that. And, um, you know, right now it's still to, to be determined. But our, our proposal was focused at being agile, Rob. We don't want to go build a big government building. We just want to start somewhere, six months, 
get it up and running. And if we can't show value in six months, then it's probably not the, not the right approach to doing it. I've worked in government, Rich, for most of my career. You don't do anything in six months. You're wildly ambitious. Let me tell you, my friend, it's, it's not going to happen. But I, I love you. I love your ideas. I also know it's a positive, it's a positive spin. It's coming at the same time you mentioned you did at the back end of last year. Of course, we had the US president elections. A lot of, you know, concern up front ahead of time around the um, integrity of those, the digital integrity of those. You know, we knew that nation state actors would be maybe all over it. In the end, actually, uh, you know, as a result of, of the wider community coming together, public-private partnership, we did a pretty good job, actually, of protecting those elections. So there's another example. Maybe things are looking up. What do you think? Are you, you going to end us today on a positive note in, from the world of cyber, Rich? Yeah, for sure. So, Rob, you know, being a former government guy, too, you're 100% right. The, the industry, in this case, may go build that center. And then if the government wants to play, I'm sure they'll play if there's value. But on the, on the closing note, you know, this is all about risk management. This is all about understanding and reprioritizing and adjusting to the threat environment. Um, and I would encourage everybody to keep that into perspective. Um, you know, uh, every day is an opportunity to do something better. Um, and we have to keep focused on assurance, right? Assuring that our supply chain is as secure as we can and helping to find that risk appetite. But uh, Rob, I really enjoyed the discussion. Really appreciate what, you, what you've been doing with these podcasts. And uh, I, I look forward to even some of the future topics you'll be talking about. Oh, that's great, Rich. You've been a great guest today. Fascinating topics. So much interest right now in, in, in cyber. It's great to hear your perspective today. Well, We've been listening to the world of cyber, and that, of course, appears ever more in our view as we grow our digital infrastructure. Major incidents like the SolarWinds hack grab the headlines and send a warning to all of us in government and across business that adversaries are building their online strength as well. Many of those are opportunistic criminals involved in low-level smash-and-grab attempts to steal our data but some in this expanding cyber criminal ecosystem are highly enterprising and capable of causing significant harm to the organization and companies they target. At stake for us is the health and integrity of our economy, of our way of lives, indeed our national security. Experienced cybersecurity leaders like Rich Bates know the scale and challenge confronting us. They see both the threats and our own vulnerabilities multiply. A bold response is needed, as we've heard from Rich today, not least to fix the growing insecurities of global supply chains. His ideas and those from others point to a more positive way ahead. Trust is the currency of choice in today's business world and it underpins all that represents the notion of responsible business. Threats from cyber stand in its way. And those threats are not going away anytime soon. But as we look to marshal our resources, and collective strength in a better way in the future, we can perhaps grow more confident in our abilities to manage the risks involved. Thanks for listening to another episode of Insights on Responsible Business. Hope you enjoyed it and will tune in to our next episode. Review us on Spotify, the iTunes podcast app, or whatever popular podcast app you're using and find out more on Deloitte.nl.